Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. It's time for episode 14. April's here, spring is in the air, kind of. I woke up the other day and saw blue sky out my window and actually thought I was still asleep. You know, I think it's it's kind of a uh, a blessing and a curse. It's it's nice that it's been so gray and shitty and drizzly because it just encourages more people to stay inside. But at the same time, I think it's really contributing to everybody starting to climb the fucking walls. Because every time you look out, it's just, ugh. Great, what's the weather today? Pizzy and shitty, just like it was yesterday. But we've had a few nice days. So for April, what I thought I'd do, because, you know, you don't need me to tell you, the, the world is, is, we're having just as much fun in April as we had in the last few weeks of March. So what I thought I'd focus on this month is comfort, and specifically comfort films. I think we all have kind of a, a stable of, of movies or TV shows that we come back to if we're, if we're sick, if we're, you know, feeling really down in the dumps, you know, just different media that we use when we're having, you know, different emotional triggers. You know, I've, I always get weird looks for this, but if I'm ever feeling like really mad or angry, just like heavy metal. You know, I tell people that I've roommates or spouses, like, if you ever hear me listening to Slipknot's Iowa album, you know I'm probably in a really bad mood. But that's what I use to, you know, get it out. You know, you just let those guys just fucking pummel you for an hour, and then you're like, oh, okay, I feel better. I know some people go to acoustic and all that kind of stuff, but eh, that doesn't mellow me out. This kind of makes me tired. Unless I'm in a good mood, then I'm super upbeat about it. But I find if I listen to like really happy music like that, if I'm in a really bad mood, I just get sad. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But we've all got them. It, it doesn't matter whether it's music or movies or book or TV show. I think the perfect description is that how many memes are there we've seen going around where it's, you know, a picture still from The Price is Right. And it's like, this is, was the best thing, best medicine you had as a kid when you were home on a sick day. And it's true. But I think, and what I really want to talk about with a lot of these movies is I find with comfort movies, at least for me, it's not just so much the movie, it's everything that comes with it. This whole, you know, construct of, of memories and nostalgia that builds that comfort. Because there's lots of great movies out there that are, you could say, are warm or comforting for different reasons, but some of the films I'm going to talk about this month, some people would say, how is that comforting in any way? But it's the whole experience of the film and from a memory perspective. And that's something I've talked about on the show before. And it's something I'll talk about a lot because I believe in it wholeheartedly that with your favorite films, it's not just the movie itself. It's everything that comes with it. It's the memories of finding it, of watching it, who you were with, talking about it with your friends, showing it to somebody, hunting the tape down, getting a specific piece of merch. All these things really contribute to, for me, these films I'm going to talk about this month, building that whole comforting experience. So the films, you put the movie on, but that just kind of acts as its own catalyst to bring in all these other healthy things that help make you feel better. So it's going to be a lot of storytelling this month. I'm going to like dive into the films, but 
I think in some cases, it's not even so much the film itself that's as, as important because you can't separate, at least I can't separate the movie from this huge experience I've had over my life with the film itself. So that's completely simple, right? Yeah, but I thought you were going to comfort us, Bob. I didn't think you were going to make us dig all deep and emotional, but you know, you, we've got nothing but time. So let's start unpacking some baggage here. So to kick this one off, kick the month off, this is in my entire history of podcasting. This is a film that I I wanted to talk about, but I could never figure out the right way to do it. When I had a frame apart, it was the one of the first movies that came up of how were we going to talk about this? Because what can you say about certain films? You know, there there comes a point where some movies are so talked to death that you can't you can add your kind of spin on it. But it's just difficult. What's your angle? How do you come at it with? And with Ghostbusters, that was always a big thing that I couldn't figure out what to do. Because do I just sit and talk about how great the movies are? We all know it's fucking Ghostbusters. On A Frame Apart, it was, it was Ghostbusters and Back to the Future. That was kind of our white whale that sat on a shelf. It's like, do we save it for, for an anniversary episode? Do we pit them against? Like, what do we do? So it never got talked about in a frame apart. When I was doing 14 months apart, I wanted to talk about it, but what, in the terms of the 14 months apart structure, what do we say? We're not disagreeing. We're not trying to explain to each other why it's good. It just could, didn't seem to work. So I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I got been thinking about it too hard. And that's something that I'm known for doing, overanalyzing it. And you just end up, you know, not getting to enjoy talking about it. So when I came up with this idea of doing comfort films, because I had so many different ideas for this month, but when I thought about comfort films, it was the first thing that jumped into my mind. The most comforting movie I can put on when I'm sick or stressed or tired that just guaranteed will make me feel completely better, and that is Ghostbusters 2. Yes, it's not the first Ghostbusters. I am I may talk about that one a little bit, but for me, Ghostbusters 2 was always kind of its own separate animal for me, and I'll get into all of those reasons why here in a sec. But because I'm getting so much better at, uh, at remembering to do the synopsis, let's get a synopsis out of the way, and then we'll, we'll dive right into this. So Ghostbusters 2 from 1989. The discovery of a massive river of ectoplasm and a resurgence of spectral activity allows the staff of Ghostbusters to revive the business. Yeah. Okay. So let's get the, uh, the elephant in the room out of the way. This always seemed crazy to me, like I, to the point where I almost had some real trouble processing this. But I know that out there, there are people that just don't like Ghostbusters 2. That seemed so crazy to me, and it still seems crazy to me. I, I, can, I can empathize a little bit more with it now that I'm older and I've been able to devote probably too much time to thinking about this. The, the, the problem with Ghostbusters is it's inherently franchisable. The, the core concept 
just is built for telling more stories and just offers up a world that is so ripe for franchise. And we've seen that be very successful with the real Ghostbusters cartoon with, well, at least half the episodes of that. And then following that with the extreme Ghostbusters cartoon, which was way better than it got credit for the continuing story in the IDW comic book series, which are great video games, etc. It's built for that. But at the same time, it's a minefield to try and do at least to bring back the live action group because the original Ghostbusters, I'm not the first person to say this and I won't be the last, it's lightning in a bottle. It worked far better than it should have with such a crazy concept, but you had so many creative people who were really at the peak of their power. Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Ivan Reitman, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis. Those guys were really in the in the 80s coming off their SNL runs or SCTV runs hugely successful films that they for one way or the other had acted in written in produced or directed these guys were at the top of the mountain and kind of assembling this comedic version of the Avengers almost coming together to make this one project they'd all worked together separately or in pairs but to bring this whole group together it's kind of how I talked about last week with these different uh, filmmaking teams like John Carpenter, Deborah Hill, and Dean Cundy, or Stuart Gordon, Dennis Paoli, Brian Yuzna, and Mac Albert. That's really what this was like. So these guys came together and made a comedy that shouldn't have worked as well as it did. The horror comedies are probably the hardest genre to get right, where you can actually balance being scary and funny, you know, Three guys starting a business is the base concept of the original Ghostbusters, and then taking and applying that to this crazy outlandish science and ghosts and supernatural, and it was just it, an explosion. It, there's a reason that movie is still so beloved and so and is held up over the years. It's just perfect. Every decision was made correctly. So when you have to make a second one now what do you do? Where do you go? Because you don't want to make the same movie again. You want to do something different, but that chemistry and the success is based around a certain formula. So I get it. It's basically Ghostbusters 2 is basically just the first movie again. This was something that actually had not even occurred to me until I went to a screening of it. Uh, I am lucky I did get to see it when I lived in Toronto when the uh, underground theater was still a thing. They were doing a series on beloved films that a huge part of the population for some reason still managed to hate. So they were in the theater and they bring up a couple guys and one guy gets up and says all the reasons why Ghostbusters 2 is incredible and the other guy gets up and he's like, guys, we can all like this, but we have to deal with the fact that Ghostbusters 2 is actually just a remake of the first movie. And you get some boos and some groans. But then as he starts to state his case, you kind of start to feel this wave of understanding go through the audience where it was this mix of, huh, and, oh, damn it, immediately followed by, well, I don't care. Really don't. You know, I, I get all those things. There's things in the movie that don't make a lot of sense. You know, how did Dana go from working in an orchestra and being a cellist to now she's suddenly qualified to be an, to work in art restoration? That's a very complex job. It requires university training. 
you know, it's super lame that Winston isn't in the movie more, even though he totally should have been. We can see the hoses connected to the slime blowers that are feeding the slime into them. You know, they soften the overall tone of the movie. Like, all, all of those things aside, I, I get it. All of those arguments are, are valid. And if you're looking at it from a purely technical standpoint, those are completely sensible. Those are the arguments you would make to to kind of, I don't want to say take shots at it, but to give a general critical analysis, critical in the actual sense of the word. You're critiquing it. You're not just being a shit about it. But all of that stuff means absolutely nothing to me, has no bearing because I have such a massive history with this film. So that's what I'm going to get into here and start to, you know, Buckle up, everybody, because story time's about to start, and I'm going to get a lot of this baggage off my chest, because I've waited so long to tell some of these Ghostbuster stories, and, you know, you hopefully you'll get a good chuckle, because some of them are equal parts cute and horribly embarrassing all at the same time. So, I have no memory of seeing the original Ghostbusters. It was always just something that was there for me. And it came out the year I was born, so we're the same age, 84, and... That summer that my mom, my mom likes to tell this story, the summer that she, or the year she was pregnant with me is when it came out that summer. And they were out at Six Foot Bay a lot visiting our friends, the Hortons. And their oldest, my friend Aaron Horton, had seen it. And he was constantly running up to my mom, grabbing her belly and yelling the theme song into her belly button so that I could hear it because he was so excited and he couldn't wait for me to see the movie. So it's, it's something that's been, I was born into Ghostbusters. And when I was little, the cartoon was on the air, the show was everywhere. It was just there for me. But while I don't remember the first one or the first time I saw the cartoon or when I got my first toys, I remember very clearly seeing Ghostbusters 2. So let's set the stage. It's the summer of 1989. Ghostbusters 2 is coming out. Yes, I understand it was the summer of Batman and people were excited about that. But for me, it was all about Ghostbusters 2. We were in Toronto. We went up to visit my Aunt Debbie, and we were staying with them, and we went to see the movie in, in Toronto. I don't know if it was Scarborough Town Center or wherever we saw it, but I was I remember just being over the moon. I was going to see it. Ghostbusters 2 was actually the very first movie I ever saw in theaters, so that's my one awesome first experience story. You know, I've talked about this before. We all like to say that as horror fans, you know, we all wish our first movie was, you know, Texas Chainsaw or Dawn of the Dead. And for some of us, it was, but usually it's something kind of goofy that got us into it. But Ghostbusters 2, I was going to see in theaters. And we got to the theater and I was so excited because it's such a big place and I'm in Toronto and I'm just kind of old enough to understand how big a deal this is. So we get into the theater and I have spotty memories of specific images on the screen, but we're watching the movie, and it came to the scene where Ray uh, is hypnotized by Vigo when they go to the museum to, to do their investigation. And I melted the fuck down, absolutely melted down, had a full-on hysteria freak out. I wouldn't even call it a tantrum. It wasn't a temper tantrum. I, I just melted down. I was so horrified by what I was seeing that I had to be removed from the theater. <laughs> My mom had to take me out of the theater because I was in such hysterics. I can't overstate how important the character of Ray Stance to me, or was in, to me as a kid. 
the Ghostbusters were my heroes. They were such a larger than life thing to me. I knew as a kid that, you know, I couldn't be, I couldn't be a sports player. I knew I couldn't like be Brett Hall or Patrick. Wall. I couldn't play baseball or hockey. I had problems with my knees and my back and my hips. I knew that was removed from me. And as a little Canadian kid, that that's a heavy burden to have to carry at such a young age to know that I knew I couldn't be, Luke Skywalker or any of those things. But I could be a Ghostbuster because if I studied hard enough, if I was brave enough and I believed, I felt like I could be a Ghostbuster. And that's all I wanted to be in the world. So to see Ray hurt like this, even though they're in technically in more physical danger in the first movie, it didn't matter because I guess because it's such a big screen, it was so huge. I, I melted the fuck down, completely broke. So I get taken out of the theater, and they, my family finishes watching the movie, and we're walking around the mall. And uh, this might be a little gross overshare, but whatever. When I was a kid, and up until recently, actually, I just quit doing this when I moved home. Um, I was a, uh, I picked my fingernails when I was nervous. It's something I started as a kid, and I only just broke recently, broke the habit. And I was so anxious in the theater that I had actually picked my toenails until they were bleeding. And I remember looking down at my little, you know, five-year-old feet and my little sandals and seeing these like raw, red, angry toenails. And I'm walking through the mall with my mom, my aunt Debbie, and I'm sure my cousins, Sir Kristen and Sarah and Jackie were with us. And I'm just, I'm so dejected. I'm so heartbroken that one, I didn't get to finish watching the entire film, but also I'm still so upset that this had happened to Ray. I couldn't process it. So we're walking past the store and obviously the real Ghostbusters toys were everywhere. So they had the, all the toys. So my aunt goes into the store and she comes back out and she bought me the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. And I still have that Stay Puft Marshmallow Man to this day. So thank you very much, Aunt Debbie. That toy's got a lot of traction and a lot of love. And I felt so much better. It just made everything better. So we go home, or go back to her house, and I get up the next morning. And I remember walking down the stairs. They lived in this big, beautiful old house in Scarborough. So there's a lot of staircases. And I come downstairs, and I felt so sick. I felt so horrible that I didn't know if I had just emotional hangover or what it was. But I was so sick. So my mom's like, Christ, you're, you're actually sick. So they take me home. I had fucking chicken pox. I got the next day. And then that started, you know, back when you could still do this without inter- people internet shaming. The chicken pox party started. So all the parents find out and they're like, okay, everyone's coming over to play with, with Bobby and Jack. So everybody gets chicken pox. So that's all inherently tied into this for me playing with the toys, getting the coloring books, even though the coloring books didn't make a lot of sense because there's a lot more mustaches in the coloring books and I get it's likeness rights. But that passes. The movie comes out on video. We rent it and continued to rent it. Despite the fact that I think until I was almost six or seven, I have clear memories of being just so excited, sitting on the couch on Denny Crescent, watching Ghostbusters 2, and every time it came to the scene of Ray getting hypnotized, I would have a complete breakdown (laughs) and just completely flip my lid. And my mom would scream, Mom, turn it off, turn it off. She'd come rushing in, oh, it's okay. And she'd turn it off and fast forward a little bit. 
or, you know, she'd just turn it off and, you know, calm me down. So it was a while before I could get through that. When I was rewatching it for this recording, I still, every time I watch it, I get to that scene and I have a little, a part of me, you know, I can still hear that, you know, that five-year-old Bob screaming somewhere in my brain. That, that scream is still echoing. That's, that's how much of an impact that had on me. So all of this led into this overwhelming memory and love for it. And also, it wasn't the film that I rented the most. Because we didn't, you know, VHS tapes were still very expensive back in the day. And we didn't own a lot. So when, if I got to rent something, we go to the video store to pick out the movies. Because I'd had this problem with freaking out over it, my parents finally got to the point where they're like, you can't rent this anymore. Like, until you can get a hold of yourself, you can't rent it. So we, I would always rent the first movie. It's like, well, if I got to rent something, usually my pick came down to Ghostbusters. And I would just watch the movie over and over and over and over again for two or three days and then take it back. But we had taped copies of the films. So as most people know, back in the day, when you're watching a movie on TV, it's usually edited for TV, which is not just content, but it's runtime. So you have a two hour, you know, you have an hour and a half movie in an hour and a half block of TV. You're obviously not going to get to see the whole movies because they have to stick commercials in there. So stuff has to come out. So we would watch the movie, but you're watching this truncated version. Now, this is going to sound all a little strange, but it's for me, it works. Because I was watching Ghostbusters 2 for so many years, edited Whenever I would rent it instead of the first one, it became kind of this new experience for me where it felt like I was watching a brand new film or some kind of lost director's cut of this film. So it started to build this kind of mythological status in my head because I felt like every time I was watching the movie, I was watching a new film like I had and started to, you know, because when you're young and you don't have the internet or anything to answer questions, you start building up things in your head and I'd be like, oh, I didn't see that scene before. This must be a different version of it. And to go into overshare mode, we all have dreams that we like to have. Obviously, flying is everybody's favorite dream because it's fucking dope. You know, we all, there's dreams that we all kind of share collectively, Uh, you know, broken teeth, all that kind of stuff, having to pee, hearing the phone ringing, all that shit. But one of my favorite things to try and do for myself is if I try really hard, I can actually probably seven times out of 10, give myself a Ghostbusters dream. And I know that sounds kind of gross and sexual, but it's not in any way. If I go to bed just really thinking about the movies, I can have a dream about being a Ghostbuster. And a lot of these dreams revolve around scenes, getting to watch a version of the movie that had scenes in or has scenes in it that I had never seen before, that it was some kind of lost version of the film because of this experience I'd had as a kid of watching these edited versions or stuff on TV, etc. And I, I always wake up afterwards and I was so excited that I got to see these new scenes and then I wake up and in that minute or two, it kind of takes the brain fog to clear. I have this crushing realization of, fuck, those scenes don't actually exist. 
damn it. And I get so mad and frustrated with it. And I know that all sounds so silly, but that's just a little glimpse into how my brain works. You know, it's a, it's a very strange place in there. It's a bit of, it's a, it's a minefield riddle with Ghostbusters and VHS tapes. My other, you know, just to get off this track, my other favorite dream is going into video stores and seeing, having it be filled with movies that for some reason I'm strangely familiar with, but I've never actually heard of in waking life. So that's another great one when it pops up. Much better than broken teeth and having to pee. So obviously this, as you can tell, has has built up quite an obsession with this movie in my mind over the years. Also, the merchandise wasn't as easy to find. So whenever I would find, you know, the Ghostbusters 2 collector's cards obviously were a big deal. I actually bought an unopened box of them at Fan Expo, God, probably five years ago, four years ago. And sat and opened them all. And obviously the gum you could use to cut somebody with because it's rock hard. But it's all these these little things that built up to this. And for me, I think the my biggest kind of not a comeback, but my biggest argument against the flaws you could have, I never cared about any of it because to me... Yes, it's not as good as the first one, but all the matter to me about Ghostbusters 2 is that it, there, it was more. You know, I've always been a sequel person. I, it's one of my favorite things about horror is sequels. Like, you want, you like this movie? You like Children of the Corn? Well, there's all more. There's more of this thing that I love? Sign me the fuck up. You know, it's like, it's fat kid mentality. You know, have a piece of cake. Did you know there's a whole cake? Oh, yes! More cake! So... That's all that mattered to me about Ghostbusters 2, is that it was just more of my heroes, more of the characters that I loved, and I just got to see them doing stuff. It, yes, obviously it's the best when they're in their jumpsuits, so they're doing things, they got their packs on, but to me, just the scenes of them walking around and talking or looking at stuff, that to me was just as good. So... I, I I get it, but people always look at me, you like it because it, there's just more Ghostbusters? Not that it's, of course I do. Why would you not? You know, if you have a, if you're a sports person and your team plays like the best game you've ever seen, holy fuck, I cannot believe they played such a great game. You, you just don't stop there. It's like, well, that was it. You know, like Miracle on Ice with American Russia or whatever. It's not like everybody stopped watching hockey after that. You know, you want more of the things that you love. You know, when with Ghostbusters 2, we got more. You know, yes, structurally, there's a lot of similarities to the first one. But there was more equipment. You know, the slime blowers. Holy fucking shit, that was the coolest thing in the world. You know, the Geigameter comes in in this one. The little tools that Winston and Ray are using when they're in the museum. That little thing that Ray's flicking and whatever Winston has in his hands. The fact that, you know, you see them and some of them are wearing the jumpsuits and some of them are in civilian clothes when they're on a call. Two of them will have a proton pack on, but not the other two because they're carrying other gear. This to me is a little kid. That was so fucking wild because it, in its very simple way, it expanded the universe to me beyond what I was seeing on film. You know, when they run it, there's a scene in the montage, which is one of the best parts of the movie. And they go into the jewelry store and they've, 
you know, we see them running in and only two of them have proton packs on and the other ones are carrying these briefcases and they're in their black jumpsuits, which I know are actually just really dark gray, but I don't give a shit. They're black jumpsuits. And then they're in there and they're setting up this equipment that I've never seen before. And that just, that allowed my mind to just go in so many different directions about other adventures of the Ghostbusters that are hinted at here, but I wasn't seeing, you know? And that also, that led into play because I had, you know, all the Ghostbuster figures when we were kids were from the real Ghostbusters. I didn't care. That meant nothing. They were just the Ghostbusters. So I would spend countless hours reenacting these montage moments <laughs> and building my own versions of the adventures. Or I would sit and draw those scenes very poorly, but I would sit and draw them. And that part two for me, it just opened the world of the live action universe. Because yes, we had the cartoon, and the cartoon has some fucking incredible episodes. I think of of the 80s cartoons that we watched and still have a lot of nostalgia for, a lot of them are really fucking bad and are painful to watch in a lot of cases. But for me, the first run, first 67 or 68 episodes when J. Michael Straczynski was still the showrunner, are all still great. And there's just some excellent storytelling in there. So I had that universe that was fleshing out and becoming more complex and complete. But to see the big screen version and to get all these little glimpses, you know, like when they bust the the jogging ghost in the in the park and just to think, oh, they're out there and they're having all these other adventures that I haven't seen. And yes, we never got a proper Ghostbusters three. You could say that you know, the Ghostbusters video game is as close as we we ever are going to get to a classic Ghostbusters 3. But like, obviously, I wish I had this. We, we had more. They had have continued making the live action Ghostbusters movie. But to me, this all allowed it to to live in my head. I could extrapolate these things. I could fill in the gaps myself of these these other adventures, the things they were doing in their downtime, the different ghosts that they had bought, uh, fought. Also, I want to talk about, if we're talking about nostalgia, let's talk about the setting. It's a an unheralded New Year's movie. You know, because every year at Christmas, there's the arguments of, well, what Christmas movies are you watching? And what counts as a Christmas movie? And with New Year's, it's the same thing. What counts as a New Year's movie? What doesn't? Ghostbusters 2 is a Christmas and a New Year's movie all at the same time. So there's a huge sense of warmth and nostalgia that comes just from the settings there. But also, because it was Christmas and New Year's, the movie would tend to be on TV more during that time of year. And I'm sure we can all agree that if you had kind of a classic, in quotes, Christmas as a kid, there's nothing quite like thinking back to being seven or eight years old, you know, the Christmas trees glowing with those big, beautiful glass bulbs that overheated terribly, you know, snow's falling outside, you're sitting in front of the TV, you've been doing Christmas stuff at school all day. There's there's such a, a cocoon of, of Norman Rockwell-esque warmth that wraps a lot of those memories. And there's good ones and bad ones that we all have, but I can summon that one up really well. And Ghostbusters 2 delightfully slots in to that little cocoon of memories. So it's something that just makes it all the more special. So now, all these years later, I don't just sit and watch the movie. 
everything that I just told you about, and there's I'm sure there's more little kind of little teensy one-off moments that, you know, sitting and watching the movie in my proton pack. I had a black onesie, uh, like jumpsuit pajamas that I had when I was a kid. Well, onesie, it didn't have feet, but it was just kind of the zip-up black suit. God, the amount of times I sat and watched these movies with that, my proton pack, my ecto-goggles on, and or just running around the house, you know, busting ghosts. And my parents were always big on creative play. So that was always encouraged. Like I couldn't like be in their face or anything, but they would also humor me and we would go. Now, this is when I was little, you know, go to friends' houses for dinner or whatever, and I'd show up in my jumpsuit with my pack and my arm badge on and my, you know, three traps and all my gear and go around people's houses looking for ghosts, come back out with my full traps and be like, don't worry, everybody, I got it. Your house is clean. I remember doing specifically doing that at Kathy Peter's house and she's, she's teased me for it uh, about that for years. And rightly so it's, it's, it's embarrassing, but in the way that it's so terribly cute that you, you know, what do you say about it? You did those things. Kids should do that. But on top of encouraging this play, we grew up in a house where the studying and looking into the the supernatural and all these ghosts and aliens, all this stuff was very encouraged. It was a normalized thing. I've talked on 14 months part about our friends, the Johnsons growing up and being exposed to all this stuff. So as I'm watching Ghostbusters, you know, my parents never looked at it and said, yeah, ghosts aren't real. You know, this is all just fake. I knew how the movies were made. You know, they would, I've, like, my parents would talk to me about, or my mom specifically, you know, that's a puppet. You know, that's, they, that's animation. Somebody drew that. Somebody built this. There's somebody inside there. Cool. But the, the core concept of the ghosts, they never discouraged that. They were like, no, there's a, that this stuff is probably real. You know, just because we haven't figured it out yet doesn't mean it doesn't, you know, we can't measure it or quantify it. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The technology in the movie that they're using, that's, they've been able to quantify and measure it, you know? So that just added a sense of reality to the whole thing. So now, as I was saying, when I put on Ghostbusters 2, all of this stuff comes with it. It's not just the movie and sitting and being like, oh yeah, I remember seeing that once or twice. Great. More Ghostbusters. Cool. And you just watch it and then you get up and go. I, I don't really have passive relationships with film and media, as you might have guessed. So I don't generally just watch something and walk away from it unless I really don't like it. So every time I put on this movie for that hour and 20 minutes or whatever that it's playing, everything that I just told you, all of those stories, all of those memories, all of those things come rushing back to me. And despite the fact that some of them are a little, you know, you could say it was a little traumatic, you know, but traumatic with a lowercase t, you know, there, there's, I don't have a genuinely negative memory tied to any of this. At the time, some of this was heavy for me to deal with, like the fits and picking my toes and all that shit and the chicken pox. But, you know, history gives us these rose-colored glasses. And Ghostbusters 2 is a giant set of rose-colored glasses for all of this for me. So every time I put on this movie, I get to relive all of these wonderful moments and wonderful experiences that I had with this film. And I get this incredible sense of comfort. 
And even as an adult, you know, still sitting there having these moments of this movie still feels so special. And I want to be a Ghostbuster just as badly (laughs) as then now as I did then, you know, and I think it's I think I have more of those memories tied into Ghostbusters 2 than I do to the first one. You know, the first one's untouchable. You can't fuck with that movie. Like, it's impervious to anything. So it was always just there. And, you know, I shit, I didn't even know it was a comedy for 25 years. I went to a screening of it, and people were laughing. And I got really pissed off. So why the fuck is everybody laughing at this movie? Because when I watched it, it was like fucking taking sacrament. Like it was this holy thing that I was interacting with. And yes, I understand how that sounds, but I don't give a shit. So whoever I was with, I can't remember who I saw it with. I don't like Mandy went and saw it or maybe it was me and I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Kind of nudged me and went, they're laughing because it's a comedy. You idiot. I was like, oh, shit. I guess it is funny. And yes, I know how that sounds. Bob, you didn't understand that Ghostbusters was a comedy? Nope. Never occurred to me. Because I didn't often watch the film with my parents, if at all, because I was re-watching the movie over and over again, and they would get kind of sick of it. So I didn't have adults sitting with me. To me, it was just this sacrosanct holy thing that I was just watching and living. But with Ghostbusters 2, because I have so many more memories tied into it, and it always occupied this special place for me over the first film that I know it's not the better film. Um, but it's honestly, it's probably the one I like best. If given the choice, I will usually pick Ghostbusters two to watch because it comes along with so much of this. And recently my youngest nephew Sawyer got into Ghostbusters in a big, bad way. I'm sure we've all seen the Ghostbusters Playmates toys that were around. And they did a lot of Ghostbusters 2 ones, which I really liked. And the Proton Packs look good. I don't care for Playmate. I didn't play with them as a kid. I don't like how rigid they are. I don't think it allows for a lot of really creative play. But that, beside the point. But he was fucking obsessed and watched that first movie to death. Oh my god, my sister was fucking clear climbing the walls. She was so done with this movie. And then I told him one day, I'm like, dude, did you know there's a Ghostbusters 2? Really? And watched that movie to death. Just been watching the cartoon. I had my Ghostbusters uh, visual dictionary out, the visual history, big encyclopedia out today when I was doing some last minute looking around research here. And he come knocks on my door, comes running into my room. It's like, is that a Ghostbuster book? Yes, it is. Open it, please. <laughs> so we sat on my bed and fl- every time, because it's an amazing book, flipping through the pictures and he's like, what's that? I know that that's the Ghostbusters. You know, it's it's getting to re-experience all this through his eyes has been wonderful. We were in the car one day, I think probably eight months ago, and we were talking about Jack, was my sister, trying to tell him something. And she's like, who do you think's in charge? And without missing a beat, he's like, Dean Yeager. And pissed our pants howling. Because Dean Yeager is the Dean in the first Ghostbusters. So it's been great to relive all that through his eyes. And it just adds more to this film for me. So that from now on, those memories of his experience with it, when I watch it, come into play. You know, the exact same way as the novelization I had as a kid 
of Ghostbusters 2 that I read until it fell apart. So I know I didn't get into the movie too much, kind of picking that apart, you know, but it's it's Ghostbusters 2. Like, I'm sure we've all seen it. It's on Netflix. Go watch it if you haven't seen it in a while. You know, there's there's stuff I love, like the endless debate of, you know, did did Lewis actually make a difference during the final confrontation by blasting the the slime mold from outside of the building? I think yes. Even if it was only 1% of a difference, that still counts. That's how anal retentively I argue. You know, I I know there was such a troubled production on the film that the script they originally wrote and Bill Murray had finally agreed to because he was the holdout for the second one and has been the, the holdout for the third one for so many years. When he showed up to set, he was like, they gave him new pages and the whole tone of the movie had kind of shifted. And he had, that's the reason why we didn't get a third one, a proper third one as a follow-up because he felt burned on how they handled the second one. It would be nice if that original version we got to see, you know, I Vigo is such an incredible villain for me. He feels more grounded than something like Gozer because we've all been around paintings. We've been in museums. Like there's, there's so much stuff that they did right that even stripping away this huge nostalgia, this massive mountain of memories I have with this film, which I know I can't be objective about this film. I have have no objectivity, which you might have gathered by this point. I'm the least objective person when it comes to Ghostbusters in general, but especially Ghostbusters 2. So I honestly don't know. I I don't know what just the idea of sitting and watching Ghostbusters 2 is like. I, you know, and it would be nice in an alternate universe to see this other version of it. It might have been worse. We don't know how it would have turned out or what it would have done to the franchise going forward. We might have got to have seven or eight Ghostbusters movies. Who knows? I'm happy with what we have because to me, other than the the lackluster remake, it never got to jump the shark. We have these two movies. So for me, I know not for everybody, but they retain kind of this perfect perfection for me, because we can see with the Ghostbusters animated series what happens when they go all the wrong way. You know, Slimer and friends, I'm looking at you. But yeah, that's that's Ghostbusters 2. It's my go-to comfort film, or one of my major go-to comfort films. And if you haven't seen it in a good long while, it's like I said, it's on Netflix, which everybody's watching right now. Check it out. You know, sit back, think about your proton pack that you had as a kid and all your toys, and just feel better because that's the whole point of these movies i'm going to talk about this month is movies that make me feel better hopefully make you feel better if you check them out if you let them do their work right you know, like there's no point taking medicine if you're just going to keep being unhealthy but this this helps out so on to deep space nine so the episode 14 aired may 9th 1993 and it's called progress Kira must convince an old Bajoran farmer to leave a moon becoming inhabitable due to mining operations. And Jake and Nog try to trade off some Cardassian yamak sauce. This episode is a total rebound from last week. And for me, anyway, really represents what Deep Space Nine does when it's at its best and where it would go forward as a show. And that's its presentation of complicated morality. And this episode really focuses on the kind of the flip side of the uh or really addresses the needs of the many you know that famous spock line the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and that's what this is about 
what the concept here in the episode is that Bajor is going to be tapping the volcanic core of one of their moons to transfer energy to to Bajor itself, to the planet, so that it can be used to power and heat homes in the coming winter. Excellent. It's going to help hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. It's very important. So they've evacuated all of these, the farmers, only a handful of settlers on this moon. I think they referenced 45 people. But we have this last holdout, this old farmer who escaped from Cardat or escaped from Bajor at the start of the occupation. And for 40 years, he's been, as he said, taming this moon with his bare hands and built himself this wonderful life here. And Major Kira is forced into this situation where she has to convince this guy to move. This old man who spent his whole life there, avoiding the fight, staying out of it. And the wonderful thing is they're both right. You know, he shouldn't have to go. You know, she shouldn't have to make him move. Neither of them should be in this situation. They won. Bajor won the war. They forced the Cardassians out. No one should have to deal with this. You know, the war's over. But sometimes you, even when you win, or by winning, you find yourself having to do uncomfortable things for the needs of the many. When you're in a position of, of power and authority, sometimes to help the most people, some people don't or get left behind. You know, we, we have to do, you have to try and help as many people as you can. Or save as many people as you can. You can't save everybody. And that's what this deals with so well. Because for Kira, she spent her entire life living by this very simple kind of black and white code. You know, Cardassian's bad, but Joran's good. Whatever you have to do to get rid of them, that's what you do. There was no having to ask farmers to leave their homes so that you can use that land to feed 100,000 people or heed 100,000 homes. There's none of that. It was very simple. So now Kira's in this horrible position where she's doing the right thing. But doing the right thing means taking people out of their homes and forcefully relocating them somewhere else. Sounds very Cardassian-like. Very Cardassian-like behavior. And that's what she's forced to deal with here. She's now the good guy. But she has to do something that reminds her an awful lot of what they killed Cardassians for doing. And it's, it's wonderfully complex and it ends gray. You know, she has to, she physically burns down this guy's home because she, he says to her, I'm not leaving as long as my house is standing. So she burns it down and it just ends on that note. We don't see him resettled. We don't see this new beautiful land he's been given on Bajor itself. Nothing. We're left hanging with this, fuck, she had to do that. And that's so brutal and so hard. But it's the right, you're doing the wrong thing for the completely right reasons. And it's just so wonderfully gray. So great. And the B story of Jake and Nog trying to sell the Yamek sauce is, is quite cute. You know, they just want latinum for it, but they have to keep trading it. You know, they trade the, the Yamek sauce for stem bolts. They trade the stem bolts, sorry, self-sealing stem bolts for a piece of a plot of land. And then they end up selling that plot of land for money with Cork's help. And that's great because it's just, it's more Nog time. You know, I always felt bad for Sirach Lofton who played Jake because other than like his best episode, he's not actually playing Jake for most of it. It's Tony Todd plays an older version of him. 
but it's just further furthering how great a character Nog is. So to get to see him kind of in his his Ferengi element of wheeling and dealing and quoting rules of acquisition, all great stuff. So check it out. It's DS9. Even it's not the best episode of the series, but in the first season, it's definitely one of the major standouts. For books, uh, another one that I actually just finished. I read Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, and this book focuses on the idea of how we think and how we draw information. And we we've always been taught as a society: the more information you have, the better. You should get all the information you possibly can, and then you should thoroughly sort through all that and then and only then once you've done that draw a conclusion on the situation but the whole argument of this book that he makes here is the idea that no in a lot of situations that's actually not helpful and it's this idea of thin slicing a situation where you can actually draw enough information to make a decision based on very little interaction with a subject. And he's drawing on dozens of different studies and papers published, talking about and citing different experiments, walking through and how for the most part, we can get more information and assess situations quickly by just taking a few looks at something or having, you know, just five or six seconds to see something and then moving on than we would if we spent hours stressing and mulling over it and gets into the minutia of, yes, well, that sounds like snap judgment is such a great thing, but talking about the responsibility of building up the tool sets to be able to make those snap judgments on different subjects and why it can be so helpful, but why it can also be dangerous and how it can be dangerous. It's Endlessly fascinating. I've read two of uh, Gladwell's books now, uh, The Tipping Point and now Blink. And it's academic. He's citing research papers. That's really what this book is, is it's a, you know, it's a dissertation on a subject. He states a, a hypothesis at the beginning or a thesis, defends it the whole way through, and then wraps it up at the end. He manages to write very in a very academic way, but without making it feel like he's talking down to you or he puts all these very complex theories and ideas into a way that is inherently relatable and understandable, uh, no matter, you know, what your educational background is or your exposure to, to science or academics or anything like that. So well worth reading. And it's, you learn just as much about the ideas that he's discussing as you learn about yourself, because it really, as I was reading it kind of forced me to sit back and go, well, how do I approach these situations? And realizing just how much information we get incredibly quickly that we're not actually consciously processing and how much of our daily interaction and our interaction with other people is actually being processed in our unconscious. And that information is being given to us and our decisions are being made without us actually knowing that we're making these decisions. So fantastic. Cannot recommend that enough. Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Recommendations. This seems like a no-brainer for me. Ghostbusters, the real Ghostbusters animated series and the extreme Ghostbusters animated series, uh, and probably the Ghostbusters the video game. The new one, not the Atari, like the old one, the new one. The Sega game actually was pretty good too. Duh, obviously. For book, Ghostbusters, the ultimate visual history by Daniel Wallace. 
holy shit, this is an exhaustively researched book. It covers the both movies, the animated series, the comic books, the video games, the merchandise, the toy lines, everything goes incredibly in depth. Uh, most of it focuses on the first movie, uh, rightly so. But for me, all this information about Ghostbusters 2 that's in there was a revelation. I was just, oh, if you're a Ghostbusters fan or just a fan of the franchise in general, this, to me, this is the book. You know, it's if you want to learn about Ghostbusters, this is the Bible. You know, it's uh, Crystal Lake Memories, the giant coffee table book on Friday the 13th series. It's like that. It has everything. I don't know how they would improve on this short of just going completely insane and putting in a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. So absolutely excellent. Check it out. Whew. Coming next week. I don't know yet. <laughs> I have a list of films that that I've been kind of putting together this comfort film list and sorting through it and making sure that and now that I've recorded this episode, I can go, okay, I have to have as much fuel uh, background stuff as I do with this one. So I have some ideas, uh, be some horror, some not horror, some animated stuff, but that's, it'll, it'll be something. So we'll all find out together next week. Isn't that exciting? We've got nothing but time on our hands for mysteries, folks. So I want to thank you guys so much for joining me for this. I know things, things are tough. Things are stressed. I hope you know, listening to me do this show is, is a nice reprieve. You know, you can have that hour or so or two hours with Stuart Gordon, kind of just some time to yourself and, you know, or sit and listen with your kids, you know, sure. I cuss a bit, but there's not too bad. It's not like I'm saying like the you know, C word or any of the real top shelf stuff. And yes, I won't even say it because I'm a fucking gentleman like that. So until uh, next week, when we find out what the hell I'm talking about, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me at SoundCloud at Steal My Name Podcast. Be sure to follow, subscribe, like, share, all that great stuff. You know, more people that are, are listening, the better, I say, because of course I'd say that. What the fuck else would I say? Don't tell anyone. This is our secret, damn it. No, not at all. Thank you guys once again. Remember to stay safe, wash your hands, don't go out if you don't have to, and Start celebrating people that are out there on the front lines. You know, my mother uh, works at a uh, retirement residence in Peterborough, St. Joseph's at Fleming, and she's there working so hard and it's so brutal. And those people are out there every day, whether they're the person getting you, you know, working at the deli with your lunch meat or they're first responders or they're working in, you know, senior care or hospitals or whatever. You know, these people are out there doing all this so that, you know, a shub like me can sit here and talk to you about Ghostbusters, too. So that's partially why I wanted to do comfort stuff this month, just to, instead of getting off on some rackets about cannibal movies or violent nonsense shit, just to do my part to to kind of contribute to this overall level of health and well-being that we're looking for. So thanks once again. And remember, until next time, to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.